All right, so uh, first of all, I want to wish everyone a good morning and good evening and good afternoon for all those online. Uh, my name is Joe Glauber, a Senior Research Fellow here at IFRI, and it's my pleasure to welcome everyone uh, to our webinar today on Farm Subsidies and International Trade Rules. Um, I think one of the hallmark achievements of the Uruguay Round uh, was to bring agriculture into the global system of trade rules. Um, and in particular, to establish disciplines and rules governing agricultural domestic support. Under the Uruguay, uh, Uruguay, Uruguay Round Agreement on Agriculture, trade distorting support was capped and reduced, though with some important exceptions. Well, 28 years ago is a long, long time. Uh, <laughs> and I think the last few years, to put it mildly, have been challenging, challenging ones for the WTO. Since the collapse of the Doha uh, talks about 15 years ago, efforts to reform domestic uh, support have stagnated. Yet support levels as measured by the OECD and others have increased in recent years. Today's seminar, I think, is going to provide a fresh discussion on domestic support, featuring Lars Brink and uh, David Orden, authors of the recently published book, Agricultural Domestic Support Under the WTO, Experiences and Prospects, and you guys brought a copy. I hope you'll show it uh, to the crowd. I did not bring mine. I apologize. There's two um, display copies out there on the desk. So we're going to start with a, a short presentation by the authors, and then that's going to be followed by uh, comments from a panel of trade policy experts. Uh, we're eager to hear from you. So uh, those of you online, uh, to participate in the Q&A session, uh, we please submit your questions on ifpre.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, YouTube, or you can use the hashtag, um, hashtag AskIFPRI uh, on Twitter. So first, let me uh, introduce our guests. Uh, David Orton is a professor of ag agriculture and applied economics at the Virginia Polite Polytechnic Institute and State University. Um, for two, uh, from 2003 to 2016, David had a joint appointment here at IFPRI and was a colleague of many of ours uh, there. And he's also the author of several, I think, really important books. Um, one, Policy Reform in Ag American Agriculture, uh, Analysis and Prognosis, back in the, which he published in 1999, which was really, I highly recommend People who were interested in agricultural policy. It's a very nice dissection of the 1996 Farm Bill, you know, a, a watermark piece of legislation, and, and it's just an excellent piece. And then another, uh, uh, more recently, um, David with, was uh, authors, uh, some co-authors uh, edited a volume on WTO disciplines on agricultural support. Seeking a fair basis for trade, which again I would highly recommend. Um, among other things, and some of some of the authors that are here in this room, uh, like Lars, uh, contributed chapters that did a lot of shadow notifications of countries. Because at the time, if I remember correctly, David, when this project was started, um, a lot of countries weren't notifying in a very timely way, including the U.S. And, and I think. Was still uh, on. Uh, uh, it, it, I, I remember as being a, at the time I was a negotiator in Geneva, and it was, it was uh, I, at least the preliminary papers that were done here at IFPRI were just excellent books. And anyway, David will get up, uh, he'll uh, give part of this. His co-author, Lars Brinks, I think anyone who knows uh, US or uh, 
anyone who knows trade policy, and particularly the area of domestic support, knows Lars Spring. He's uh, uh, currently an independent advisor on agricultural support policies. He's a fellow and former uh, president of the Canadian Agricultural Economic Society, and he's held positions with Ag and Ag Food Canada and contributed to WTO and OECD meetings in agriculture for many, many years. And I can say this uh, also as a former U.S. negotiator, oftentimes I would consult Lars Brink, a Canadian advisor, um, because Lars was seen as such an authority and, and, and also as such an objective um, uh, uh, analyst on, on such matters. Okay, so I'm going to invite you guys up. Uh, first, I'm going to um, uh, we'll first uh, invite up uh, Lars, and then he'll be followed by David. Thank you, Joe, for that kind introduction, and thank you to IFPRI for organizing this seminar. As Joe said, the book is mainly about domestic support under the Agreement on Agriculture, and the objective of the agreement is to substantially reduce and reduce agriculture support and correct and prevent distortions in world agricultural markets. That's the context where I will focus on the different categories of support over time. And then David will highlight the measurement of market price support and how this relates to implementing the agreement, uh, settling disputes and negotiating better provisions. Next. Sorry, I should have said next before. Next now, please. Thank you. Go back. Um, the key phrase in the agreement is domestic support measures in favor of agricultural producers. And the support under some, but not all, measures is subject to limits. The support that's subject to limits is measured through a number of aggregate measurements of support or AMSs. And for a given product, you add the market price support and the payments to the product. The information we have for later years is very patchy. So the gray column on this slide means the data is too incomplete to give us a solid number. The colored line is the sum of all AMSs that members have notified to the WTO. The large decline in the first 10 years or so is mainly the result of policy changes in the European Union and Japan. So those changes meant that these members could calculate much less market price support and that made their AMSs much smaller. And then the increase later in the period, the subsequent increase is that China went from very little AMS support to reporting $9 billion in 2020. But in the intervening years, China had actually reported much larger amounts also, and that explains the increase that you see on the chart. So the handful of members with large AMS support uh, includes uh, China, the European Union, United States, Japan, and India. Next, please. So 
the limits on AMS support do not apply to a type of direct payments that we call blue box payments. And these payments must meet specific conditions such as being based on fixed area and yields or no more than 85% of a base level of production. The EU accounted for almost all the blue box payments up to the peak of $36 billion in 2004. And in later years, the, the European Union's blue box payments are much lower of the order of $7 billion. But China started making blue box payments and they reached $13 billion by 2020, which it doesn't show on, on the chart. I've forgotten to say next here. That's, that's what's happening. The, okay. Um, blue box payments are right there, the dotted line. Yes. Now, um, next. Ah, that works. The um, Article 6.2 of the agreement identifies the second category of support that's exempt from limit, and that includes input subsidies in developing countries. Now, economic analysis shows that variable input subsidies without constraint distort production as much as price support and output subsidies. And with that in mind, we should, we should know that India by itself accounts for more than 90% of all Article 6.2 subsidies. Uh, and the time pattern you see here for the Article 6.2 subsidies is mainly that of India's input subsidies. More recently, which is not on the chart, India exempted $32 billion worth of input subsidies in 2021-22. So that input subsidies is now a larger, much larger category of exempted support than the blue box payments. Next. The black line at the top is just the sum of these three components of what we call Article 6 support. So uh, even though the support total is less well, how should I say this? The support in later years has increased, but it's still less than it was at the beginning. So in that sense, there has been a decline in Article 6 support. And that fits very well with the long-term objective of the agreement on agriculture of reducing support. So uh, I think the, the overall assessment is that this gives a passing grade to the agreement on agriculture. Next, this black line is the same uh, sum of all AMS 6.2 and blue box support that we saw before, before, and it's just the vertical axis here that is much taller. Next, and that's for context where we introduce the agreements Annex 2 which we call the green, green box, which um, is about measures that are exempt from any limit. And direct payments to producers is a major part of this, and they have increased to about the same size as all Article 6 support. The major increase happened from 2004 onwards, 
when the European Union again changed policy so that they were able to exempt uh, a new form of direct payments from limit as, as green box payments. And at the same time, China ramped up its green box payments to make them even larger than the green box payments of the European Union. So China and the European Union together account for more than 90% of all green box direct payments. Next. We now add here what's called expenditures in Annex 2. This is mainly expenditures on general services, which are not producer-oriented in the same way as Article 6 support and the direct payments in the green box. And the increase in expenditures here includes an increase in general services of almost $100 billion on the part of China by 2020. Next. We'll continue on the green box with a few more words, a little bit more depth. So the green box requires that the policy measure have no or at most minimal trade distorting effects or effects on production. That's, that's a requirement. Uh, and both, both expenditures and direct payments need to meet that requirement. The general services include uh, a number of things that uh, are listed here, like expenditures on research, advice and extension, pest and disease control, inspection and grading services, and infrastructure services, and several other kinds as well. The direct payments, in addition to having to meet the requirement about no distort minimal distorting effects, need to meet specific criteria that are listed in Annex 2, and um, they are under headings such as decoupled income support, income safety nets, and environmental programs. And environmental programs, uh, it's not clear whether that includes mitigation of climate change. Uh, it's, it's not explicit in the agreement. Um, there is wording in Annex 2 about extra cost or loss of income under the environmental programs, which can uh, go counter to the idea of having no uh, or minimal effect on production. If you reduce production, is that a more than minimal effect? So there, there are things that need to be clarified in in the Annex 2 wording on, on green box direct payments. Now, we know that there is a growing interest in payments that are based on outcomes or results instead of being based on doing things in particular ways in certain practices. And the green box allows new programs that are not specifically identified in Annex 2. And there is an opportunity or a potential to design programs to meet some of the criteria under what is called decoupled income support. And you could match that with a requirement to um, achieve an outcome in terms of, of, of mitigation of climate change. Uh, 
and my time is running out. Um, and uh, the, I shouldn't forget about the need to tackle food insecurity. And uh, one piece of the puzzle there, of course, is to make sure that uh, production that is more sustainable is something that you can encourage by means of policy. And obviously the general services, particularly the research and development part of general services offers a lot of space for supporting or fostering the development of uh, production that is more sustainable. And there is no limit on that kind of expenditure. And with that, I will hand over to David. Well, good morning. Uh, <clears throat> thanks, Lars. It's been a pleasure working with Lars over many years on these issues. Uh, so thanks, Lars, and thanks also to Charlotte and Joe and IFRI for organizing this seminar and to everyone um, here and online for taking the time to participate. We're going to now turn back to, if I can have the next slide. Yeah. We're going to now turn back to AMS support and particularly the measurement of market price support, which has proven uh, problematic under the agreement on agriculture. As China and India have become large support providers, their price support programs have been subject to disputes in recent years. Market price support also enters the ongoing negotiations, so it is right at the center of the dialogue around the agreement on agriculture. The agreement, as many of you know, specifies a formula for measuring market price support, but there are substantial differences in the views in views of how the elements of the formula should be measured to evaluate members' compliance. Some of these issues have been addressed in disputes. Others have not risen to this level of assessment. Now, in the context of the agreement, what matters is the interpretation of the legal formula and MPSs measured in this manner. Uh, Christian Lau will review these and other domestic support questions that have and have not been addressed in a limited number of disputes. The agreement formula also differs in important respects from the measurement of market price support in economic analysis. There is a well-established and conceptually sensible economic measurement, but again, complexities arise in making empirical assessments as OECD, IFRI, and others have worked diligently to provide. Now, where the two measures uh, come into juxtaposition is when you consider the long-run objective of the agreement towards correcting and preventing distortions in world markets. In this context, the issue arises of how well the agreement measurement corresponds to economic measurement. So the limits applied under the, to support under the agreement have sensible implications for limits on economic price support that affects markets and trade. Okay, if I can have the next slide. Let's turn to the measurements and their outcomes in several cases. The general formulas are displayed, but let's discuss their differences in a specific context. This is the dispute brought in 2019 by Australia, Brazil, and Guatemala 
towards India's market price support for sugarcane and export subsidies for sugar. Now, as you see in the chart, uh, the economic market price support expressed as a percentage of value of production is positive in the years addressed in the dispute and increases in 2017 and 2018, reaching up over 20%. Now, in this, me in this measure, the domestic support, the domestic price in India is compared to a border price adjusted to the same level in the marketing chain. As you can imagine, sugar is traded, sugar cane is not. You have to make a number of adjustments to make a, a price comparison. Uh, the impacts of increased economic support may have been an impetus for initiation of the dispute, but this economic measurement was not an issue in the dispute. The panel assessed the agreement market price support at much higher levels. India's support prices, what the agreement terms applied administered prices, are prices sugar mills are legally mandated to pay to sugarcane farmers, essentially determining the domestic price. The panel determined that, that these support prices applied to all sugarcane production as, an as in an economic measurement. So the large differences arise from the price gap from comparing, as specified in the agreement, the applied administered price to a fixed external reference price rather than the current border price. For India and the original, talk about being going back some time in time, Joe, for India and the original members, the fixed external reference price is based on border prices in the distant years 1986 to 1988. This leads to a large price gap that 35 years later has little economic meaning. Okay, have the next slide. All right, market price support also enters the negotiations, particularly under the shorthand heading of public stockholding. The background is that the 2013 interim mechanism shelters excessive market price support of developing countries from dispute challenge when that market price supports results from acquisition of stocks of staple crops in pursuance of food security. Now, with this interim mechanism in place for now a decade, uh, discussion and negotiation continue on what might be a final resolution. Many developing countries argue for permanently exempting producer support from public stockholding programs from limit. Other members consider this support should be remain subject to limit under rules of the agreement. Now, we take some issue with both of these arguments. Permanent exemption of, from limit for 116 developing countries for major commodities could prove inconsistent with the long-run objective of the agreement. But in terms of retaining the limits, one has to ask whether it is appropriate to base compliance with those limits on measures of market price support along lines of the sugarcane panel, which is the type of measurement some opponents of permanent exemption put forth. Okay, if I can have the next slide. All right, in this, as this slide, these graphs show, for both rice and wheat in India, the agreement market price support measured based on annual applied administered prices in nominal rupees, the fixed external reference prices from 1986 to 88, and total production far exceeds the economic market price support estimated to have been provided. Now, I hasten to add, as the note explains, that India does not concur with this assessment, this, uh, this agreement measurement of market price support. 
it notifies lower levels and has appealed to panel decisions in the sugar and sugarcane dispute. But again, the measurement shown in these figures is put forward by some opponents of permanent exemption. Okay, next slide. Well, can these differences over public stockholding issues be narrowed? Having found fault in both arguments, we approach this question by exploring replacement of the current agreement market price support with a different measurement. This is a lag reference price measurement. Now, the formula is here on the slide, so let me just make two points about the lag reference price. First, it allows the government to know at the time an applied administered price is set, the level of reference price that will enter the market price uh, support calculation, as with a fixed external price. But unlike a fixed price, the lag reference price moves with market developments. The lag reference price won't exactly match the border price in a given year, but will generally track those prices. A price support, now if you think about it, a price support program is only likely to be challenged if the AAPs persistently provide excess market price support when compared to a trend of recent border prices. Well, if I can have the next slide. As you can see, the key point here is that for both rice and wheat in India, the, the lag reference price measurement eliminates the large difference between the agreement market price support measured as I've described and economic market price support. Okay, if I can have the next slide. Okay, so the question we ask to wrap up, it's been a fairly short, brief discussion necessarily, but to wrap up, in our book, we use a few pages to propose that in principle, revising the agreement market price support measurement to bring it closer to an economic value might largely resolve the public stockholding issue. For developing countries, complying with AMS limits would not require reducing artificial high measurement of market price support. This would make complying with the limits less onerous and leave more space for their domestic support of agriculture policies. At the same time, proponents on constraints would be assured the support remains subject to limit and that those limits have a sound economic basis. Well, this may seem like quite a bit a technical matter, but application under law of an erroneous measurement undermines the rule of law as we're seeing with the interim mechanism. Um, in final point to make is that assessing the reference price, the issue we're talking about here, was included in the draft declaration for the 2022 ministerial conference. Unfortunately, ministers didn't adopt that declaration and countries remain far apart on this and other domestic support issues. Well, uh, can I get the next slide? Okay, Joe, I'll stop here and turn it back over to you. Great, why don't you guys uh, get up or sit in the chairs and I'll look at Before we go to our uh, moderate, or we do have uh, four discussants. But I'm going to take the prerogative to ask you a few questions on my own. So, so first of all, I, I, one, what Dave and, and, and Lars have done is given a sliver of what's in this book. I really highly recommend the book. I think we're going to get at some of the other aspects of the book, hopefully, with some of the discussants, uh, and give you a chance. And I'm, I'm going to give you a chance right now. Uh, to talk a little bit. One of the cases you do go through in the case, um, in the book is the price support program, uh, price support um, case that the U.S. brought against China. Uh, 
And and they're, you know, much like the Indian case, in the sense of also dealing with price support, um, you had a, a you had an outcome that was in one sense very very positive to the U.S. in the sense of fighting against China. China ended up accepting that ruling, if I'm not mistaken. There, there right now it is a compliance review, which you may get into, but um, or there there has been talk about a compliance review, but the um, as opposed to the Indian case, which was appealed, and of course right now there is no sitting appellate board body, and because of that, the, essentially this is as uh, as uh, people tend to refer to it as appealing into the void with with no real resolution. So I, it'd be good if you could just talk about those two disputes in a little bit. And okay, is this on? Yeah. All right. Well, I've characterized the uh, India dispute, and you're right; it's been appealed, so there's no final resolution. Uh, neither China nor the United States appealed the panel decision in the uh, in the China dispute, which was raised again about market price support for wheat and rice was what the panel uh, eventually uh, made judgments on. So neither party appealed, and so the dispute settlement body was able to adopt that resolution, I mean, to adopt that panel report, and uh, China committed to coming into compliance. Now, why was China, was China able to accept the panel report, whereas India has appealed? A uh, couple of issues. First, um, for China, as an accession member, the fixed external reference price to which uh, the current support prices are compared, uh, the panel determined that that should be based on China's accession in 1996 to 1998, which led to much higher reference prices, which really substantially reduced the price gap. The second thing is that the panel left open, as a previous panel had much earlier on Korea beef, that if a government announce, sets in its legal uh, instruments, uh, you know, legislation for the support program, if it sets a quantitative cap on how much it will purchase, that in terms of the agreement on agriculture, that is uh, the cap, that is the amount, the quantity. So, so that differs quite a bit from the economic analysis where we would think a price gap would apply to all, all production. And if there's arbitrage, reasonable arbitrage in the markets, government purchasing a certain amount of uh, quantity would keep the price up for all, and therefore all farmers would receive the benefit of the, of the support. So, so China took two steps to come into compliance. One, it did lower its applied administered prices by some extent. It started that even while the dispute was underway. Honestly, I think Chinese officials would, would in, in themselves say that they had gotten their support prices out of line and were too high. So they partly brought the support prices down, and they also put caps on how much of rice and wheat they would purchase. So between those two measures, they were able to come into compliance um, without a dramatic change to their policy. There was some, again, there was some positive effect, as intended by the United States complaint, in bringing down China's applied administered prices. As Joe remembers, there was also a dispute on TRQs, and the U.S. won that dispute that China was not administering its TRQs in a way that didn't interfere with trade. So both of those put some pressure on the Chinese uh, domestic support and protection that opened up markets to a certain extent. Um, I think I'll, I'll stop there, Joe. Great. Okay. Um, Lars, you don't get off the hook. You know, you did a great job showing sort of the aggregate 
of the aggregate measurements of support. Let's talk about individual countries. If you can just characterize, because we have countries like the EU that have really reduced reforms or have, have put in reforms that have reduced their applied levels of support relative to their bindings. But if you can just characterize, you know, various countries and how they are meeting um, what their applied levels look like relative to their um, bindings. And, and you may want to get into developing countries and de minimis and everything, but uh, we'll try to be brief one word. <laughs> Thank you, Joe. Good question. Yes, I, I focused only on what members have notified in terms of their measured AMSs. I didn't talk about their limits. And uh, that's where we would be interested to see how close to your limits are you today. And the limits operate in two different ways. And I'll just say two words about that. For about 36 members or so, the limits operate on the sum of AMSs, if those AMSs are larger than a given level expressed as a percentage of value of production. So it's that sum that is the actual uh, limit. For most members, the limit applies to individual AMSs, and there it's also a percentage of the value of production for the, uh, for the product or for agriculture as a whole. So uh, in the case of the European Union that you mentioned, um, the so-called bound total AMS, which is the limit from the beginning of, of, of the implementation period of, of the agreement on agriculture, the limit is very large. It's somewhere around um, 80 some billion euros or a little bit more in US dollars. And the current total AMS, which is the European Union's summation of AMSs that are larger than 5% of the product's value of production. That summation is much lower, and I don't have the exact number, but it's somewhere around five or six or seven billion dollars. So it's so far below the limit. And Japan is in a somewhat similar situation with a commitment level up here of about $36 billion. And uh, their current total AMS, their summation of large AMSs is also way below $10 billion. So there's a lot of room there. Uh, for for China, the situation is different because China does not have uh, this bound total AMS. It has only the limits on individual AMSs, which of course have increased over time as values of production have increased. Um, and uh, China has actually notified, reported to the WTO AMSs in excess of individual yeah. limits on, on, on products, but uh, following the, the outcome of, of the dispute that David mentioned, they have reported much less AMS amounts, so they are below their limits. 
India uh, is in a situation where they calculate an a, a market price support and an AMS for rice that is higher than the limit. But again, as, as David talked about, there is an interim mechanism that allows that sort of thing to happen. Now, I haven't mentioned the United States, and that is different from the other members. Uh, you, the U.S. has a bound total AMS of about $19 billion. And over the years that showed on my graph, uh, sometimes the U.S. has used a large part of those $19 billion, $15, $16 billion, but sometimes much less, like $3, $4, or $5 billion. And in recent years, in, in, in 2019 and, and, and 2020, the U.S. was way up close to the $19 billion at something like 17 or $18.4 billion, I think, in, in, in one year, which is very close to your, your, your bound limit. So uh, the U.S. is difficult to characterize in a particular way, except to say that support has varied and the U.S. has taken advantage of the fact that it has a bound total AMS to a much larger extent than many other members, uh, large members have done. And also, I guess, just as an aside, uh, says that that these other country, uh, other big subsidizers, or at least historically large subsidizers, have a lot of room for reductions. And I remember full well during the Dawn negotiations where many of those countries were willing to take very, very big reductions whereas the U.S. was much more limited in term because it would cut into real real subsidy dollars. So, David, let's, let's if you don't mind, let's move on yep. to uh, yep. uh, the uh, discussants. Um, so we have four excellent discussants, one here in person, three online. And um, so I'm going to do all the intros up front, and then we'll move on. But first we're going to have uh, – oh, let me put in a plug. If again, remind everyone online. If you have questions, go to hashtag AskIfpre on Twitter or the ifpre.org website or Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube. Um, uh, they work better than some presidential candidates. I think we could <laughs> be able to get those uh, filtered to the audience and or toward our um, speakers, and they'll be able to answer. Okay, so our first speaker, our first discussant is Ann Tutwiler. And Anne's a senior uh, fellow at the Meridian Institute. But prior to this, she was served as Director General uh, of Bio, uh, Bioversity International, which is an agricultural research organization focused on using and safeguarding agricultural biodiversity to improve nutrition, enhance resilience, and support the conservation of genetic resources. Anne has been in the trade space and the ag policy space for many, many years. She's worked at the UN. She's uh, worked with the U.S. Uh, she was at USDA for a few years, um, worked in foundations, think tanks. I think she has actually a direct link to some of the work that, that is, uh, was presented here today. She'll talk about that, I'm sure. And briefly, she was at the Economic Research Service, where I met her many, many years ago, working, I think, on the 1985 Farm Bill. So Anne's going to talk about shifts in, in domestic support. 
Um, she'll be followed by Dr. Edwini um, uh, Kessie, who is, I think many of you know, is director of the WTO Agriculture and Commodities Division. Edwini has served as WTO in numerous capacities since 1995. Uh, interestingly, between 2012 and 2017, uh, Dr. Kessie took a leave from the WTO to become the chief trade advisor of the Pacific Island uh, countries where he provided technical advice on a broad range of, of trade and investment issues to the Pacific Island countries and supported them in the free trade negotiations with the Australian and New Zealand. He'll talk about the state of negotiations at the WTO. And then Edwini will be followed by my colleague Valia, uh, Valeria Pinheiro, who's acting head of the Latin American region and senior research coordinator here at IFPRI. Uh, her recent work includes modeling the impacts of agricultural support policies on emissions from agriculture, reviewing the evidence on incentives for the adoption of sustainable agricultural practices and their outcomes. And Valeria is going to focus on green box rules, sustainability, and uh, climate change mitigation. And last, uh, but certainly not least, is Christian Lau, who we're very fortunate to have join us. He's an internationally trade-recognized um, um, a trade lawyer whose practice focuses on litigating trade disputes at the World Trade Organization. Christian spent 20 plus years in the law firm of Sidley Austin LLC in Geneva, where he worked on many landmark WTO cases, including um, uh, involving domestic support, including the uh, U.S. uplift cotton dispute, where I first met him back in 2004. And Christian's going to speak about uh, adjudicating compliance with domestic support discipline. Anne, I'm going to invite you up, and then we'll hear from the others. Thank you, Joe, and uh, thank you, David and Lars, for thinking of inviting me to, to be here. Um, so, as Joe alluded, uh, when I was at the Hewlett Foundation in the 2006-ish, um, he and I had a conversation in my office about initiating this work um, at IFPRI, and that resulted, and I, I funded that work, and it resulted in um, an earlier book, which this is sort of the, the sequel, and also, um, and Joe's introduction of Christian, the Hewlett Foundation funded Sidley and Austin to do all of the underlying research for the Cotton case um, and a, a couple of other cases that um, proved to be important in shifting how countries were able to, to subsidize their agriculture. So I think this book should have had a subtitle, like The Rise of China and India, um, because to me that's one of the big stories in, in um, what this book shows. And for some of us who have not been paying quite as much attention to the trade policy world, uh, that was certainly something that, that jumped out at me as I was reading it. You certainly see um, the old players, the U.S., EU, and Japan, kind of in that top five or top ten category, kind of across all of the different complex forms of support that, that Lars talked about. But the new players that you, you see in those lists are, are the BRICS, um, Brazil, Russia, India, China. And for me, another, and that's not surprising, I guess, um, you know, given, given what we all know about how those countries have been, been moving forward economically. But the other big surprise for me in terms of the countries uh, who showed up in those lists were Vietnam. Never think that Vietnam would have been on anybody's radar screen. Turkey, Saudi Arabia, yeah, in terms of 
kind of the composition of who's providing the support. And you know, one of the things that was really interesting um, to me also was that when we were talking about the, the Uruguay round, which, by the way, you know, it was signed in 1995, but those negotiations started in 1986. And just for a bit of context, the iPhone was introduced in 2007. Um, Russia was still, the USSR still um, existed. Um, Gmail was also introduced uh, around 2007, as I, as I recall, before the expansion of the EU. So the world has changed quite a bit, and the numbers uh, that this book um, puts forward do, do demonstrate that. But we were quite concerned um, in the negotiations about the issue of special and differential treatment, right? The Article 6.2 um, exemptions. And you know, as much as we tried <laughs> through the IPC, through other analysis that was done to demonstrate that that could be a big potential kind of loophole um, as countries developed, and even then we saw countries who were, who were um, uh, listed as developing who one would argue were, were not. Um, the other thing that struck, struck me is, and Lars just mentioned this, there is a lot of what I would call risky headroom in countries' um, capacity to support their agriculture. Um, and, you know, the U.S. has taken advantage of that. Others have not yet. But, you know, as we've seen new challenges like COVID, which was why the U.S. went up so high, conflict that's going on now, price um, increases, you know, there's a lot of upside risk. Even though countries, um, even though Uruguay Round has been a success in terms of shifting support out of um, trade distorting into green box, there's a lot of risks here. Um, I'm seeing my numbers flashing over there. Um, so the other point I wanted to make, you know, when we talk about special and differential treatment in developing countries from a trade perspective, um, the, you know, there's a lot of concern to see China and India, some of these other countries, you know, really becoming big players. But on the other side, if you're a development person, you know that most developing countries are way under investing in their agriculture so and taxing it in many cases. So how we balance that of making sure that countries can invest what they need without turning into the new um, trade distorters of the 21st century. Um, so a couple of quick closing comments. So. One thing, you know, another thing I've been working on recently is this idea around repurposing agriculture subsidies, right? So shifting out of paying for producing more maize or wheat or rice to these outcome-based um, ideas, the you know, climate mitigation, soil health, nutrition, whatever. And I think we haven't really grasped what that means in terms of the WTO needing to clarify, revise its rules uh, without being so prescriptive. Um, I see my numbers flashing. I've got a couple more points and I'm, I'm off. Um, a couple of recommendations for further analysis, I think. Um, so the World Bank did some great analysis back in 2008, I think it was, about you know the impact of trade on developing countries, on trade distortions on developing countries. But I think we need to understand now who is winning and losing from the current trade regime and where are the pressure points. We need to understand um, better um, how um, the composition of that change support 
is affecting other priorities that countries have, farm income, farm size, food security, nutrition security, climate, et cetera. There has not been enough analysis um, on that, and it's outside the scope of your book, but I think important for an organization like IFPRI to start taking up. And then um, I would close with saying, you know, the OECD and the WTO and the bank and IFPRI did a lot of analysis in the early days of the um, Uruguay round and trade negotiations that helped inform nation states and policymakers. And I think we need to re-engage. I mean, if you look at the great work that OECD did on seeding the conversation on the producer subsidy equivalents and consumer subsidy equivalents, it led to um, the agreements. These organizations collectively have a real important role in educating policymakers to move to the next step. So thank you very much. Edwin, you're on. Um, um, thank you, Joe. Um, am I audible? Yes, you're audible and visible. Oh, great, great. I, I, I'm speaking from Nigeria, so um, yeah. Okay, great. Um, I'll just give a very brief background of where we are in the negotiations. Uh, I'll start by making a couple of points. First, as we all know, um, this is the third time that we haven't been able to achieve any result in agriculture. In Buenos Aires, um, there was no decision in agriculture in 2017. And last year, notwithstanding the great efforts of the then chair and most members, uh, we also did not achieve any outcome in agriculture. I must say that we were quite successful in the sense that we were able to get two decisions, one on the declaration on food insecurity and the other on the exemption of WFP purchases from export restrictions. Having said that, it was quite disappointing that notwithstanding the work that has gone in by members, uh, we couldn't actually even agree on a work program. So from that perspective, it was very disappointing. Now going forward, how are things in Geneva now? And I, I must say that I nobody knows, but I think there is um, consensus among members that it may be very difficult for us to make substantive progress in the negotiations, simply because the positions are too far apart on the key issues of domestic support and public stockholding. It would appear that members would like to get an outcome on food security, but even then, even there, it's not clear cut because for some members, they would like to import their issues that they are pushing for on public stockholding into any decision that we may have on full security. So for some members, they would insist that PSH should be there. Other members may also point the fact that we need to make good or general progress on domestic support and the other issues in order to guarantee the long-term full security of countries. So. The prognosis is not very good. Having said that, I think we still have, it is February of 2024. So I think we're gonna be working very hard after the summer break to see if we could try to um, get something. 
On domestic support, I think countries all agree. And I must say that I, I found the book very, very useful. And I do agree with Joe that it's a very useful book, a useful um, book, a lot of information, and which I personally would recommend to most of my colleagues and the ag delegates. Um, it's, a, uh, it's quite rich. Um, in terms of domestic support, opinions are divided. I think the countries all agree. I think thanks to Australia, Canada and the Akins group, Brazil, they have pointed out that members' entitlements will soon reach a trillion dollars. And if nothing is done, it could soon reach two trillion as a result of increasing production and rising prices. So I think there is convergence among members that we need to address trade distorting domestic support. But as usual, what should be the starting point? And this is where members basically their views diverge a lot. Some countries believe that all Article 6 support would have to be part of the uh, equation. We need to review um, the green box, we need to review the uh, blue box, we need to review Article 6 too. But are those who also think that we may have to exclude um, Article 6 too, we need to um, exclude the green box for now, but there are those who believe that it should also be part. So these are the sort of issues that we would like to address. The chair, um, um, Ambassador of Turkey, Turkey um, he's um, consulting members, but clearly I think drawing red lines at this stage may be unhelpful. If some countries say that, well, look, for us, this box or this issue shouldn't be discussed or we are not prepared to engage, that will spell, spell um, doom for the entire negotiation. So we are trying to put everything on the table. If all countries agree to discuss all issues, some countries are strongly opposed to green books, the green box. The idea is to review to see if we can tighten the criteria. For Article 6.2, the purpose or the objective of some countries is to clarify, to make clear that any support provided under Article 6.2 should go to low-income resource-poor farmers as opposed to being generally available. So I think that would be the first step. There are countries, the Keynes group um, is pushing for proportionality, but here it makes some countries nervous because uh, for some countries, what do we mean by proportionality? Should, it, should we take into account support per farmer or should we take into account the nominal uh, value? So um, there's a lot of issues to be done as far as domestic support is concerned. But the good thing, as I've said, is that all members agree that we need to address that. S secondly, there is also um, the issue of how do we incorporate sustainability into it? It may be a missed opportunity, as some countries have pointed out, if any outcome does not address sustainability. So we also need to see how we could make progress on that, as I, I think, um, um, David pointed out, and last in their book, you know, um, some there is the view that maybe um, um, the provisions on environment are not adequate and we need to revisit, but we haven't actually begun examining how we could actually improve the disciplines to ensure that countries are able to adopt effective adaptation and mitigation. So there is that we need to discuss. On public stockholding, the issue is basically um, some members would like to discuss public stockholding within the overall context of domestic support. The proponents oppose that because the proponents argue that if the, there is a ministerial mandate that it has to be addressed on a standalone basis. But um, especially the sporting countries are against that and they think that because of the price, um, the NPS 
um, element. It has to be part of overall outcome on domestic support. So that's where we are. On market access, the United States in particular with some Latin American countries are interested in market access and they would like to have parallelism between market access and domestic support. For them, it may be inconceivable to have an outcome on domestic support without any parallel um, outcome on market access. So that is an issue that we need to deal with. On the other issues like cotton is also important for the West African countries, but here again, it is also very difficult to see um, an outcome on cotton trade distorting domestic support separately from an outcome on domestic support in general. And so um, I think these are the core issues, but as I said, we are not giving up yet. Uh, we still have time and we hope that we would be able to make progress. I think it's quite clear that we may not be able to have substantive outcomes, but I think if we are able to agree on modalities, which we can continue after MC13, I think that in itself will be a significant outcome. So I think I'll just stop here. Thank you very much. Great, thanks so much, Edwini. Um, Valeria, you're up next. Hi, everyone. First of all, thank you for the invitation. Uh, second, I would like to really congratulate Lars and David for an amazing book. It is definitely, as my other um, colleague has said, it's a very useful one. And third, I would like to apologize to all. I lost my voice yesterday and I still haven't really recovered. So I will try to keep it very short to uh, not annoy you so much with this uh, tone of voice. But in any case, um, I've been asked to um, to talk about more of the um, the green or the uh, domestic support, but put it into the environmental uh, standard. So I think that I would like to start this by saying that um, as it is very clear in the book, as well as what everybody uh, that here knows, is that we're asking the food system now every time a little bit more. So right now we're not only asking him to have the food security, but also nutrition aspect to that, also support the livelihoods of the farmers, but also in doing this, in that they have to do it in a very sustainable way. On top of that, given that climate change and other conflicts, we're also asking the food system to be more resilient. So for including all this, um, domestic support can be definitely very, very helpful when there are market failures. And then the second thing we should consider is that this support um, should be very carefully targeted to correct these market failures, but at the same time to not discriminate between firms or countries. So having said that, what it is important is that it has to be consistent with these WTO rules. Um, I don't know if you put on my presentation. We see the presentation as well. I can see it here. Okay, perfect. Thank you. Next slide, please. So in uh, looking and reading the book, I wanted to just try to answer one of the questions that the actual authors have there, which is, are the rules of the agricultural agreement sufficiently conducive to addressing evolving policy priorities related to sustainability and climate change? So in doing this, I would just like to start with this illustration. It says that if we just look at the producer support that it is really on the left and the production decision, we have here that domestic support really affects how much to produce at scale 
what to produce in terms of what products or commodities are produced, how to produce, these are the technologies and the practices that are used, and also where to produce these, uh, and this means within location. And next slide. And then for doing this, I just wanted to show that not all input subsidies are the same. So here we have a classification for the ones that are reported. And as you can see, some of them could be seen as a good thing for the environment, while others are totally not. So in this presentation, next slide, I just wanted to really pinpoint um, we used work that we've been doing at IFPRI with Joseph Glover and David Laborde in showing and going back to the repurposing that actually Anne mentioned earlier. Next slide, please. Yeah. Um, and with this, um, I just wanted to, to, so to show that um, actually is the first. Can you go back one slide? Oh, no, one less. Sorry, I think that they are mixed up. All right. Okay, that one. Excellent. So the lessons learned that we we looked at with the work that we've been doing in repurposing is that, and it was also emphasized by David and Lars Egri. Earlier. Removing all these existing policies will definitely hurt the farmers today, uh, will slightly um, help the poor and the hungry if border protections is removed, but also it will bring some ambiguous effects on global emissions depending on if it is the production increases uh, or not. But so the, this repurposing, it is required, but in doing this, we will need the investment to do it in a sustainable way the intensification is will be required and investment also in traditional productivity gains will be, won't be enough and this is the key point here um and then the last thing is that the input subsidies are the tricky issue as seen previously in the other slide that not all of them are the same so we would like to focus on more into the health and the environmental friendly uh, products or uh, ways of production we need to make sure that this could contribute to um reduce the cost of the healthy diets, but at the same time, reduce the impact when using the production uh, subsidies. And then we'll need to also consider that uh, there is some risk for the governments to pick what they think are the good uh, products. And then, of course, are the phasing out of the resources from staples could also have a small impact on the undernourishment. And the next slide. Uh, so is the previous one, sorry. They're backwards. One more. There we go. So now how we can relate these uh, analysis that we did and numbers that we got from these scenarios to really try to see uh, how we can contribute to the discussion and the, the current negotiations and the WTO and that relates to, to the book uh, that Lars and David wrote. So the, we can split it in three different boxes. One is the current uh, WTO rules are not an obstacle for repurposing, and they need to uh, they actually provide weak incentives or guidelines. Um, so the blue box policies, especially for livestock, are um, significant potential to actually curve uh, gas um, house emissions. 
The repurposing could involve significant box shifting towards the green box and abuse the existing flexibilities, and that it is something very important in actually what it was stated in the book as well, of where are the things missing uh, in terms of uh, guidelines and concepts more than anything, the definitions that Lars was very specific about. And then the assessing the uh, price support through historic reference price is not consistent with the transformation agenda. That is exactly what David uh, presented earlier today. So in the next one is what is so the future um, that I think that countries where they should be thinking about is then to not harm or do good into their uh, own uh, policies. So one thing would be that um, the overall trade deterrent support is not as enormous to improve social and environmental impact for um, policies as we also seen so that it is something we need to make sure it is understand and then the increase in the transparency and monitoring through the notifications will be essential to really promote trust and coordination in the global repurposing process uh, and then the last one is the tariffs which was really uh, common in the books uh, but it will be that the more tax adjustments are the second best uh, option, and the discriminatory use of this uh, dispute are also inefficiencies. So, um, with this, um, um, thank you very much. And sorry if you couldn't really understand my voice, but I will be here for the Q and A. Valeria, you're a trooper for doing that. Thanks so much. Um, uh, and next, we have Christian Lau. Christian, you're on. Thanks, Joe. Thanks. Um, good, good morning, everybody. Um, first of all, I'd like to congratulate um, Lars and David on their really quite comprehensive and insightful new book, and I'd recommend it to you for, for reading. Um, now, I've been asked to talk a little bit about adjudicating compliance with the domestic support disciplines, and I thought I'd, I'd pick up on two points that um, David and Lars mentioned in their own presentation, namely that market price support as one form of domestic support has proven more contentious than others. And Lars's point about the need for clarification of some of the concepts that are included in the agreement on agriculture, but which perhaps haven't been explored um, in a lot of detail yet. So, Let's start with market price support. Um, next slide, please. What I've done on this slide is I've just indicated briefly the number of cases that have discussed the concept of market price support. And, and as you see, and as uh, Lars and David are exploring in their book in more detail, there have been a, a series of cases that have, have looked at the concept of market price support, um, beginning with two cases where market price support actually just gave rise to an export subsidy, which is subject to different disciplines. So I don't, I don't want to focus on those too much here. Um, but EC Sugar and, and Canada Dairy, I think, were the two ones that, that kind of kicked up some of the discussion on, on market price support in the late 90s and, and early 2000s. The first real keys that looked at a market price support scheme from the perspective of the domestic support disciplines is Korea beef, and it explored the meaning of the price gap formula that that Lars put up earlier. Uh, sorry, that David put up earlier on his slides, and it addressed a very contentious issue, one that has has 
proven to remain contentious to this day, namely the quantity of production that's eligible to receive the, the applied administered price, so the, the price support. The panel and the Apalpati in Korea beef held that it was not the amount of production actually purchased by a government or mandated to be purchased by um, private entities, but instead the entirety of the production that was suitable or eligible to be purchased, or alternatively um, a, a proportion thereof if the measure imposed um, some limits on eligible production. That issue arose more recently in the China agricultural producers dispute again, where the panel confirmed that a member may impose limitations on the production that's eligible to be purchased and that's eligible hence to benefit, as David would, would put it, directly from um, the, the intervention price. So, China in that case took advantage of that ruling, and I think Joe mentioned that in his in his questioning, it by implementing um, the findings against it in a way that both reduced the applied administered prices somewhat, but that also put a limit on the quantity of production that could be purchased at those prices, um, thereby. Um, bringing itself into compliance. Now, the US, um, and, and Joe mentioned that too, is challenging that as sufficient uh, compliance, but not much has moved on, on those cases, on those compliance um, arguments at the WTO in recent years. The second issue that China agricultural producers touched upon was more China-specific, namely the link to its accession protocol and the use of different um, different fixed external reference prices as part of the formula. And, and David mentioned that that was giving China a bit more flexibility to use market price support relative to original members, um, which are using 1986 to 1988 as, as that external reference price. And then finally, the most recent case that addressed market price support is the India sugar and sugarcane dispute. Um, the most important aspect in a way, at least when it comes to market price support here, is that the panel confirmed that you could have a market price support scheme even without government purchases. And, and that's different from the way in which um, the issue has arisen in other cases. All right, those are the things on market price support that got clarified. Let's just briefly look on the next slide at things that additionally were clarified. And here you'll see there only is really one case. Um, the US cotton case touched upon a couple of concepts in the AC agreement. One is decoupled income support, where limitations on planting flexibility were held to mean that it falls outside the green box. So we see some clarification of green box rules, but not much. It touched upon product specific support and, and the scope of that, but again, not much. 
and it dealt with quite significantly on trade effects, albeit under the subsidies agreement and not the agreement on agriculture. So we see that there's limits on what has been addressed. Um, I, I thought I'd take a brief look at what has not been addressed in disputes and what's been proving contentious when one looks at the discussion in the Committee on Agriculture. So just a, a, a brief rundown from looking at the agendas and the questions at, the, at some of the most recent meetings, the dividing line between product-specific and non-product-specific support, so into which box do members put their support is, has proven quite contentious. Um, the US has been the subject of a, a couple of questions there. Shifting boxes without a policy change. Again, that, that's been an issue with some of the, the US support um, policies. Misclassification of support as grain box when it probably isn't grain box. It's been another constant issue on market price supports, notifications based on amounts purchased, India um, is, is here um, to, the, to mention, has been, a <clears throat> has been a constant issue. Inflation adjustments and the terms of the Bali Peace Clause, uh, those are all issues that have quite extensively been discussed um, recently. So like Anne, I'd like to, to end on a question here, and that is, does the uncertainty about the scope of very important concepts in the agreement um, hinder negotiations because it it means that um, countries are less willing to make commitments um, because they don't fully understand or that they can't be certain as to what the current rules mean and hence would preliminary uh, negotiations on some of these issues and agreement on the scope and meaning of the, the current disciplines facilitate numbers-based discussions in the second step. Um, with that, I'll conclude my presentation. Well, great. We're your... Oh, I need to push. Great. Um, we will now move to question and answers. We have about a little less than a half hour, but hopefully be able to get a good shot uh, both here in the in the room and also we have tons of questions online. I remind everyone we can still you can still get those in um, by whatever platform using whatever platform you're watching this from. But uh, anyone here in the room have questions? Will? Uh, yeah. Great. Will, Will Martin from IFPRI. Um, thanks, thanks very much, uh, guys, for a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, haven't read it yet, but now I'm determined to, to dive right in. Um, the, uh, a question about public stockholding. Edwini emphasised just how important that is. It's always struck me. The, the rules are in some ways sort of a bit weird um, and in others seem to provide a lot of flexibility by you know, removing the flexibility to remove social safety net purchases from simply by buying at market prices rather than administered prices. And so it's surprising to me how challenging this issue 
um, has proved to be and how relatively little flexibility there seems to be. And I just wondered what you guys said and thought about that issue in the book and what we should do next. Thank you. Joe, do you want a couple questions? Or? Um, do we have another question here? Okay. I, I... Sure. Let me let me take one of the ones online, and I, and I think it's a broader question, uh, and actually I'm combining a few of them here, but people have talked about the importance of food security. People have talked about the the, the new challenges of climate and sustainability. I guess I, the in one sense, how robust are the current rules? What needs to be, does, do things need to be changed? I mean, we, you know, those of us who are involved with, with hammering out the green box back, back in the 80s and early 90s, you know, there was a lot of thought given to the, a, a variety of issues at the time. And yet now, if you look at the, the broad fabric of, of, of domestic support programs, they're very different. Crop insurance wasn't even envisioned yeah. much, you know, and now we have a huge program in the U.S. and other places. So that that's the other. Uh, why don't we stop there, take, and, and if you can uh, address those questions, that would be great. I think I got about four of the ones that were came in online with that. Okay. Uh, Thanks, Will, uh, for that question. Um, it's called public stockholding, but it isn't about public stockholding. Lars, can you hold that a little closer? It's, it, it's called public stockholding, PSH, but it isn't about public stockholding or uh, management of stocks. It's about acquisition of agricultural commodities by public agencies at an applied administered price, a price set by the government. So it's a matter of providing support to producers. And that is um, something that gets forgotten about when we say public stockholding for food security purposes, which is the heading in one of the green box paragraphs. And um, I worry about so much of the discussion being focused on uh, the need to have PSH uh, exemptions because it's all about food security. To me, it's all about producer support. And that's what I wish there was a, a larger, broader debate about um, how the rules for producer support should be dealt with. Uh, and of course, you can have all sorts of food security programs under the green box also, as long as you purchase at market prices. So it's not a matter of not being able to have public public food security programs. I get back to the point, it's about producer support. And that needs to be looked at in the same context as other kinds of distorting producer support uh, in the domestic support area. David, do you want to add anything to that? 
Well, you'll see a little bit of the back and forth that Lars and I have enjoyed having over, over many years now. I would put it a little bit differently. I mean, every country is worried about food security. We're having a debate in the United States now about work requirements for SNAP program. So every country has debates and a real concern about food security. In a lot of countries, the policy instrument is one that countries like the United States use for decades, which is somehow, while you can buy at market prices or you can protect with tariffs, setting a price and announcing it to your farmers is a policy that policymakers find attractive. So taking the being concerned about food security is obviously important, and every country is. The concern that comes up with the, the public stockholding programs is, is what Lars says, that uh, price of you know, foods, those programs do provide support to producers, and there's you know, a, a sort of stylized fact of those kinds of programs providing increasing support over time. So that's where the idea of permanently uh, you know, exempting that support from the disciplines that apply, say, for other countries or for other products, opens up a big loophole in terms of achieving the long-term objective of the, of the agreement. Uh, Joe, in your point, yeah, policies have changed a lot, and there is a lot of space. The the WTO rules are, um, you know, very porous, and um, so within them, a lot of things can can be fit. At the same time, as as I think Lars pointed out, the United States did bump close to its limit in in uh, in during you know when a lot of support was being provided due to the COVID pandemic. Now, um, what that suggests is that those porous limits, nonetheless, do have some meaning and uh, need to be taken into account by governments. The U.S. certainly made some serious efforts to figure out how to keep its AMS support from going over uh, our, our bounding and being in violation of our commitments. But uh, the rules are porous, and that goes back to Edwin's point that really if you take the long-term objective of the agreement on agriculture seriously, if you take the importance of fluid international markets seriously, then really those rules need to be tightened up, but it's awfully difficult to get countries to move forward on that. Certainly not going to happen in the short to medium term. Yeah, I think the the criticism, of course, is that f from others is they say, well, you're also taking advantage of things on trade distorting, supporting them with de minimis uh, features of the of the agreement. If you were to add those in, I think the U.S. distorting support levels would be up closer to 40 billion rather than 19 or 18.4, whatever they were that year. But but those are all issues, and you can find those with every country. And the Committee of Ag does a great job of sort of giving a forum to, for countries to come forward to challenge things. This is one thing that people don't talk about very much about the WTO, but it is one of the, the functions of the WTO that functions very, very well. And I think is is really been a, um, you know, hopefully the dispute settlement body will get back working with an appellate body as well. But but those have really been kind of the crown jewels of, of the WTO. And you want to yeah, I, want to on that. I just wanted to come in on this, the issue of the new challenges. Um, you know, when I work a lot now with the environment community and when they see the green box, they think, ah, oh, green, environment. <laughs> and I said, no, 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 it's green like a traffic light, right? And so I, I think there, there needs to be some conversations between those two, two communities about you know, what is in the green box? And Valeria mentioned, uh, made a lot of good points on this. Not everything in the green box is 
consider to be repurposing in the way those of us who are talking about it in terms of meeting environmental challenges, climate challenges, nutrition challenges. And I'll just give you know one example of that. Um, when people I, I um, deal with on nutrition, they say, oh, we just need to increase subsidies towards fresh fruits and vegetables. I'm like, no, we don't want to do that. We want to figure out a way to support better nutrition, but through you know a, a non-trade distorting mechanism, which could be green box, but there's not space necessarily for that. I want to also mention briefly, and Valeria talked about the analysis that IFPRI did, um, comparing what would happen if you took support away versus repurposing. But one thing she didn't mention, if I remember correctly, that the best outcome of any of the scenarios that IFPRI looked at was to actually put money into research. Yeah, And we, we have totally neglected research and not had a conversation about what kinds of research can actually help promote the um, achievement of these other non-trade related um, challenges that we face. Yes, just to, for context, I think research and development is in the U.S. is what, three billion, four billion, something like that. And, and yet, you know, we're, our CCC spending, our crop insurance spending, our uh, conservation spending is well upwards of 20 billion. So it, it yeah, you, uh, very good point. How about our other discussants? Uh, anyone there want to comment? Don't feel obligated, but uh, if you do, just raise your hand or start speaking. <laughs> okay, great. Yes, Charlotte. Uh, thanks very much. Really great discussion. I'm, I'm a little sorry that we don't have anybody from India or China on this panel. So could I ask, uh, I don't know, Edwini may be working at the WTO. It's hard for you to represent the views of uh, some of your members alone, but it would be very interesting, I think, to hear their position on the PSU uh, 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 um, topic, the public stockholding. Mm -hmm. And then the second um, question is about the Article 6.2 input subsidies. Just trying to get a feeling for has this, this doesn't seem to have been under discussion as much as, say, the, the public stockholding, right? But it's an enormously important topic. And maybe connecting that to your point, Joe, when you say, when you ask the question, do we need to sort of relook at our rules from a climate change environment perspective? I think it's more than that. It's looking at it from that perspective and the food security perspective, right? Because that really wasn't really top of mind, I think, when we started negotiating the dough around. And now it is. And so the the input subsidies are a great case in point, right? I mean, if you suggest to India that they sort of repurpose their fertilizer subsidies, I think that would be a really difficult proposition to make to the Indians, especially after the year that we've just had. Uh, so how do we sort of square it? So again, it's not just the new sustainability issues, but how do you bring those together with the still and maybe increasingly important food security issues that the world faces? Guys, why don't you uh, take a shot at that? We're getting close to closing time, so. Yeah, no. Lars and then Edwini respond to that one. Yeah, okay. You asked Edwini, right? If he'd like to. Edwini goes first. Edwini, you want to comment? Okay, and. Yes, on public stockholding. 
um, India together with um, South Africa, well, um, the G33, the Africa group, in the run-up to MC12, they tabled a proposal, and the proposal, there was no convergence on that proposal. Now, um, a couple of weeks ago, they have retabled the proposal, but there was a lot of pushback, mainly from the sporting countries. Um, so uh, we don't know what they are going to do, but um, the US, the Keynes Group and other countries um, said that, well, look, we have discussed this proposal. We did not agree to it. So there is no point in resubmitting the same proposal. So it is very difficult, but um, I think the chair wants to um, try to get some elements. And I think there are three clear elements. Most members are concerned about if we were to have a, a permanent solution, what should be the scope of that solution? Secondly, what sort of safeguards that members who believe that there shouldn't be any exports from procured stocks and there should be enhanced transparency. So we believe that if we were we are able to discuss these elements, then possibly there could be convergence. But um, broadly, as I pointed out, many countries, Brazil and others, they believe that there shouldn't be a standalone decision on public stock holding, that any outcome should be part of our overall package on domestic support. So I think this is where we are. India and other countries have also raised the issue of the fixed external reference price. Here again to the sporting countries, in as much as they see value in discussing this issue, they don't want it to be limited only to public stock holding. It would have impact on the domestic support architecture in general. So this is the sort of issues we are focusing on. And um, yeah, so after um, the chair has um, sent a series of questions to members and trying to see where there could be possible landing zones on this issue. On Article 6.2, we have discussed the issue at length. Like As I pointed out, there are some members who believe that it's a red line. Many developing countries believe it's a red line, but for exporting countries, um, they point to the fact that India spends between 25 to 30 billion a year in, in on average in the in, in recent years. So they would like to have a discussion on that. Um, it will be very difficult for some members if Article 6.2 is not part of the equation. But for many developing countries, they believe, particularly the poor countries, they believe that they need to keep Article 6.2. So it's something that we would also have to address. Is that it is an important issue for both sides. So we have discussed it, but as I said, the positions are very divergent. But clearly, we have been discussing it, and I think um, after the summer break, it will be one of the key issues that we would have to focus on. Thank you very much. Okay, guys. Unfortunately, the clock says it's time to go. So uh, I want to thank you two in particular and the discussants. Uh, this has been great. I think what we're really hoping is this is the first of a number of seminars that IFRI is going to host on WTO and trade issues. I think it's time to start talking about this stuff more actively and, and um, so uh, stay tuned uh, for that. Uh, but in the meantime, thanks to everyone. Thanks for everyone coming today. It's so nice to see a bunch of people in the room. I hope we all aren't reporting positive test results, <laughs> but I think we're, we're good. Uh, Joanna, thank you. This is your last big public event. Thank you so much. Say, uh, yes, Joanna, I can always say she has helped me on a number of seminar or webinars that we've done over the last few months. Uh, just done a great job. Say he, is she, here and then uh, she is will be taking over. Uh, Michael, as usual, uh, um, 
Jamin, as usual, uh, and everyone else, uh, thanks so much for hosting these, uh, uh, making these virtual and hybrid things work so well. And thank you guys. And we'll see you later.